I enjoy hearing how boisterous the room gets when we do that. That means there's a lot of good fellowship going on. And I hope you enjoyed that time of uh, saying hello to one another. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series. I got to thinking about the section of Scripture that I know the least about, uh, that I read the least, that I study the least, and, well, it's the Old Testament prophets. Nod your head this way if it's the same for you. The section of Scripture that you read the least, you study the least, maybe you know the least about. And so I thought, I'm going to preach about the prophets. But the problem is, that is such a large section of Scripture, I knew I had to narrow my focus. So I cut out the, uh, the big major prophets, as we call them, the longer prophetic books. But still, that left me with 12. There are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament, and so I knew I had to narrow it further. So the books that we're going to focus on for the next few weeks are Amos, Hosea, and Micah. And what binds these books together is that they were all written in about the same era, in eighth, the 8th century B.C., so around seven, 800 years before Jesus came onto the scene of human history. And this morning, we are going to start with Amos. And so, if you have your Bible... I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Amos. And, you know, if you're like me, you don't go to Amos a whole lot. So I'm going to give you a little bit of extra time uh, to find that in your Old Testament and to get there. Amos chapter 1, verse 1 is where we're going to begin this morning. We're looking at the book of Amos, but this book was written by a prophet named Amos, and so... We want to start by asking, who was this guy? Who was this figure in the Old Testament? Well, he explains a little bit uh, in verse 1 of his prophetic book. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So we find out here what he did for a living. He was a shepherd and where he was from. Tekoa, which was a city in Judah, the southern kingdom. Which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, uh, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So this gives us a lot of context. If we know, and we do, when these kings reigned in Judah to the south and Israel to the north, then this places Amos, this historical figure, and his writing uh, squarely in the middle of the 7th century, uh, or the 8th century rather, the 700s B.C. And we find out, as we've already mentioned, that Amos was a shepherd and he was from the city of Tekoa. We learn a little bit more in chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. A little bit more biographical information about this guy. In these verses, Amos tells us, I was no prophet. I was not a prophet's son. This is not something that runs in my family. Instead, I was a herdsman, or a shepherd, as we learned earlier. We also learned that he was a dresser of sycamore figs. Do we have any dressers of sycamore figs in the house this morning? I didn't think so. It's not a real common profession today. Uh, But it was what Amos did for a living. And then he says, but the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So this is not an occupation that ran in my family. I received a calling from the Lord. He got a hold of me down in my hometown of Tekoa in Judah, and he said, go to the north, go to my people in the north, go to Israel. 
and give them this message. And the message that Amos has to deliver to the people of Israel is not a very pleasant message in the least. We can tell from the get-go of this book of Amos that God is very angry. In fact, look with me in verse 2. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion. This is Amos preaching to the people of Israel. God is speaking through him. And his first words are, The Lord roars from Zion, and he utters his voice from Jerusalem, this holy city in the south. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So right away, we get this image of God as the lion. And normally, this would be a comforting image for the people of Israel, for God's people, because it would mean that God is ready to ferociously defend His people. He is sitting in His lair, and He's ready to pounce on anybody who messes with His special people. Uh, He's going to go to battle for you. He's going to fight for you. This is an image that is very comforting to us today as Christians. It's the image that C.S. Lewis used in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, In Aslan, this figure that represents Christ in that series of books. God as lion is normally a comforting image to us, but not here. This, the way that Amos uses this image here, well, it says that God is going to bring about destruction for His people. Uh, To be specific, a famine in the land comes after God roars. God's roar brings about devastation for his people. And so right off the bat, as Israel is listening to Amos talk, they should be getting a little bit nervous. They should be sensing that there might not be some good news on the way from God as he speaks through Amos. However, after verse 2, the spotlight shifts away from Israel as Amos launches into a series of oracles against Israel's neighbors. Now, what's an oracle? An oracle is a statement of God in which he accuses a nation of a certain sin and then he announces what their punishment is going to be. And I've got a map up here of all the nations that God that are under the gun here, uh, that God uh, proclaims against. He starts in verses 3 through 5, speaking against Syria. Up here it says the kingdom of Aram, Damascus. It's that green zone. Verses 6 through 8 is an oracle against Philistia down uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, the red region. And then he speaks out against Tyre up in the north, the Phoenician states, verses 9 through 10 of chapter 1. And then Edom, verses 11 through 12. Amon, verses 13 through 15. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Moab. And so God has some bad news for all of these surrounding nations uh, around Israel. God is furious at them. And the reason for His anger on each of their cases is the atrocities that they're committing against other nations. They are guilty of heinous acts against other nations, some just horrific war crimes that they have committed, and God is saying, I'm accusing you of this, and you will face punishment. I'm holding you accountable for basic laws of human decency, for your sins against humanity. You are in trouble 
for what you have been doing. And, and truly, there are some horrific things here. If you, I'm not going to read it this morning, but in this section from 13 to 15 about Amon, um, I don't even, I know it's from the Bible, but we've got kids in the house and I don't feel comfortable reading it. It is so awful. They were guilty of some uh, atrocious crimes against other nations, and God is mad. And we can imagine that Israel must have enjoyed this sermon a little bit, this series of oracles, because at one point in history or another, Israel had been at odds against all these nations. And so I can imagine that they were delighted in some ways to hear about God's judgment against their enemies. You know, we all love uh, to hear sermons that are focused on somebody else. And how many of us are guilty of, during a sermon, looking over and seeing somebody and thinking to ourselves, I'm sure glad that person is here today to hear this message. Because they sure need to hear it. Or maybe we even say that to our spouse or to a friend. I'm sure glad that she was in church today. I hope she paid attention to what the preacher had to say. We all like to hear a sermon that is focused on somebody else. Years ago, my family visited a little church up in the Smokies while we were on a camping trip. And when the old preacher mounted the pulpit, he said, today we're going to talk about the proper roles of women and men. And I want to start with the women. And he did. And he launched out uh, in this sermon uh, to the women for the next 30 minutes. He went after them really, really hard and told them what they should and shouldn't do. And when he finished on the women, he said, all right, now it's time to talk about the men. And then he did this number, and he looked at his watch, and he said, oh, would you look at that? We're out of time. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) I'll have to get to the men next week. And then he said, I'm getting some dirty looks from my wife down here. We will definitely talk to the men next week. Uh, But during the sermon, we were sitting in front of this family that we were camping with, and the father of the family, he was a real jokester. And every time the preacher would come down on the women really hard, He would lean forward and he'd say, Amen, right in my mom's ear. Amen. Amen to that. He was eating up the sermon that was solely focused on the ladies because we love sermons that are about other people. During Amos' sermon, I can almost hear the Israelites saying Amen throughout. They had heard this style sermon before. This, This was a form that was used when prophets would say, Thus says the Lord. They were familiar with this. And so they knew what Amos was doing. He was speaking out against all their enemies and probably by the end of it, they were starting to feel a sense of self-righteousness. Aren't we so good compared to all our bad neighbors? Listen to all the negative stuff that God has to say about these nations. This is great. Amen to that. Amen to that. And then the seventh oracle hits a little closer to home. It's against Judah, which is Israel's sister nation, right to the south, once they were unified and since they have split up. And so I'm wondering if if at this point Israel's getting a little nervous. But still, Israel and Judah, there had been some strife between these nations, and so maybe they were still eating it up. Maybe they were still enjoying Amos' sermon against all the nations. Now, the nations up to now have been judged 
for crimes of, of inhumanity. And this should tell us, this is a, a biblical principle here. God holds us accountable for what we know. We are responsible for what we know. Even though these nations had not received the law, God expected them to act in certain ways. There are certain rules of human behavior. There are laws of human decency that all people are expected to follow. And God says, I expected you to follow these and you haven't and you will be judged accordingly. Now when we get to Judah, the game has changed a little bit because Judah has been given the law. They know a little bit more about, or really a lot more, about God's will. And so God doesn't judge them for crimes of inhumanity. He lines them up against the law. He judges them according to the law. They are held to a higher standard because they know more. And they ought to understand more. And so to them, God says, you have broken the law. And it's at this point that Israel probably thinks, okay, the sermon, the sermon is about over. For us, it would be if I begin to launch into the invitation section, and that is a cue for you. If you've been in church a long time, there is a change in my demeanor and in my language, and that tips you off. Okay, the end of the sermon is coming. It's time to start gathering up my children's belongings, and you start reaching for the songbook. It, it appeared to the Israelites that Amos' sermon was wrapping up. He had, he had communicated seven oracles, and you know that that's a very biblical number, and it means, uh, it means complete, completeness, comprehensiveness, and so they probably thought it was over. And at this point, they're reaching for their hymnals. But then listen to what Amos does. Listen to what God does. In verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel... And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. He, he blindsides them. There's an eighth oracle. And who is it against? It's not against some other nation. It's against us. And he launches into this final oracle, and it's his longest yet. It is three times as long as any of the ones that have come before. And it's also his fiercest. You think God was mad at the other nations? He's exceptionally mad at Israel. Can you see the Israelites? They've been eating this sermon up the whole time. They're loving all this judgment stuff against their enemies. And then God says, thus says the Lord, I will not revoke the punishment that I'm bringing down upon Israel. Can you see, can you see their jaws hit the floor? Can you see them wilting in their seats? God has saved this oracle the worst and the longest for last, and it's against them. And it doesn't end there. This is an introduction to the rest of the book, and God spends the rest of the book almost speaking against His people Israel. Listen to the accusations He makes against them. Verses 6-8, through eight, and I don't have this whole section up on the screen, so follow along with me in your Bibles. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. That's, that's a pretty long list. 
In the previous oracles, God has just listed one sin. Here, he lists seven. And these are not sins that they're committing against other nations, like the other oracles. These are sins that they're committing against their own people. And make no mistake, God grieves. God is angry at the sins that occur in the nations of the earth. You better believe that God grieves over the state of the nation of Syria right now. And that He's angered over the people who provoke and enact violence on other people. Hundreds of thousands murdered in a civil war. God's heart aches. And His anger flares at those who would cause harm to other people. But what God gets angry about here is that Israel is abusing, neglecting, disregarding their own people. People that they are in community with. People who also are enjoying this covenant with God. This is, this is internal problems, internal sin, not external sin. Well, surely we would look at this and we would say, this can't be any worse. This can't be worse than what the other nations were doing. Those heinous war crimes, those atrocities committed against other people groups. What Israel was doing, I mean, it sounds bad, But surely it can't be worse than what Ammon was doing or what Philistia was doing or what Syria was doing. And God says, actually, yes, it is worse. Your sins are worse. And he tells them why in verses 9 and 10 and 11. This is what God says. I'm paraphrasing here. God says, I went to battle for you. I defeated a mighty enemy for you. I brought you up out of Egyptian bondage. I came and rescued you. You cried out to me and I listened and I came to your rescue. I brought you into the promised land and before that I sustained you in the wilderness. I took care of you all these years. I raised up prophets to warn you when you were going astray. I gave my message to men and women and they told you where you were sinning. I gave you Nazarites to challenge your commitment. And above all, we, are, we share a covenant relationship with one another. I gave you the law on the mountain. And we entered into a covenant together. And what's more, like Judah, like we just saw in the previous passage, they had been given the law. They knew right from wrong. God had revealed His will to them. So in other words, God is saying, Your sins are worse because you of all people should know better. You should know better. You know more, therefore I'm holding you to a higher standard. Ignorance is no excuse. Since you know better, you ought to act better. That's You know what makes God most angry? It's when people who know better don't act better. That's what really fires God up in this passage and today. He's mad at the other nations for sure. He he is. You can hear it in the first part of Amos. But he's madder at Israel. And the reason that he's so mad at Israel and their behavior is because they're his people. And he shares a relationship with them. And he's communicated the law to them. And they know better, but they're not acting like it. God is upset at the sinfulness of the world, as we just established. And so are we. 
We're upset at the sinfulness of the world, and we love to talk about it, and we love to hear sermons about how sinful everybody else is. We love to hear sermons about uh, how bad uh, the immorality is in our nation, and, and we love to opine about the state of our world, but God is more, even more upset when we fall short. And the reason is because we know better. The reason is because we share a relationship with Him. The reason is because we're His people and we know better than to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ poorly like the Israelites were treating one another. So God grieves when we focus more on budgets and bottom lines than on helping people. He grieves when we're nice and friendly to each other, but we never quite get around to talking about God's judgment and His grace to one another. He grieves when we become so busy with our own lives that we have no time to help out a brother or sister in need. We have no time to share our home. We have no time for Christian hospitality. He grieves when we dishonor one another by checking out pornography on our computers or on our smartphones. He grieves when we disrespect and degrade and demean one another and gossip and talk behind each other's backs. He grieves when we neglect to care for one another when we're in need. That's what angers him the most. He has a very special stake in the way we treat one another because we're his people and we're in a relationship with him. When we put on Christ, we place behind us the times of ignorance, as Paul talks about in Acts 17. It's not an excuse for us anymore. We know better and we are to turn away from ungodly ways. We are to repent. We might want to hear a sermon about somebody else's sin. Israel was enjoying a sermon about somebody else's sin. And then God says, this sermon is about you. And it's your sin that disgusts me the most. So while we want to hear a sermon about somebody else's sin, we need to hear a sermon about our sin. Because we're God's people. And we know better. Because of God's anger at Israel's sin, Israel faces a punishment from which they will not be able to escape. And you can read about that in Amos chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And make no mistake, if we recklessly continue in our sin, we face destruction as well. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. He says to the Roman church, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is angry at our sin. And if we continue in sin, then we will be the objects of his wrath. In verse 8, for those who are self-seeking, not God-seeking, for those who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are graciously, we can be graciously spared the wrath of God. Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 8. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. We had done nothing to deserve it. We had not shown God that we were worthy of it. While we were still lost in our sins, while we were still the objects of God's wrath, Christ came and He died for us. And listen to, how, listen to what that accomplishes, verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified, made right, made righteous by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. God is angry at sin, and because of our sin, we are recipients of His wrath. But because of the cross, we can instead be recipients of His grace. And the question is, will you decide to receive His grace today? If you have not put on Jesus Christ in baptism, then you are still living in your sins. And as a sinful human being, you face the wrath of God. You face the anger of God. Listen, this is not a pleasant message to preach. God did not give Amos a pleasant message to preach to the people of Israel. But sometimes we have to talk about the unpleasant. Sometimes we have to talk about the bad news and we have to really understand the bad news so that we can see how good the good news is. The bad news is that you are an object of God's wrath if you continue in your sins, but God has given you a way out because God loves you. God doesn't want you to be punished for your sins. You can know that because He allowed somebody else to be punished in your place to receive His wrath so that you could receive eternal life. God sent Jesus to the cross, and He hung there in our stead. That was our cross. That was our punishment to face. Jesus faced it instead. And because of the cross, we can know that the final word on the matter is not receiving wrath from God. It's receiving life from God because of what He did for us through Jesus. And now that you know that, there's no, way, there, there's no way to unknow that, to undo that in your brain. Now that you know that, are you going to act on it? You know better. You know what God has done for, for you. And you know what you need to do in response in order to receive this gift of grace and love and life. And you have no excuse if you don't come and receive it. You know better, why don't you act better today? And if you're a baptized believer and yet your life has just gone off the rails and you're struggling with sin and you so desperately want to get back on track, this is your chance today. Your conscience has been speaking to you and reminding you that this is not the way that you ought to be living. You know better. Why don't you come and make the first step towards acting better? If you have a spiritual need right now, Come and make it known as we stand and sing.